0: Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker.
1: All right, here's a joke. What do you call a boomerang that doesn't come back? I don't know. A stick.
0: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico
2: Galliano, And from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations.
0: You just got a joke from Dan Pashman, host of the food show The Sportful and author of the book Eat More Better. We'll speak with him later. Also joining us is actor Elle Fanning. You saw her in the blockbuster Maleficent. She stars in the new indie film, Low Down.
2: Also coming up, author Gary Steingart recalls his political reawakening, the director of the Cannes-winning film Force Majeure talks about catastrophe, both natural and familial, and we meet a man who puts bubbles in coffee.
0: But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Lava flowing from Kilauea volcano
3: on Hawaii's big island. The explosion of a commercial rocket that was supposed to bring supplies to the International Space Station. The
4: San Francisco Giants won the World Series and continued their even-year magic.
0: Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Mike Rugnetta. He is the host and writer of PBS's Idea Channel. And the host of Reasonably Sound, a podcast on the Infinite Guest Network. Hello. Sister podcast. Welcome, Mike. Hi, Mike. What story are you going to be talking about this weekend?
5: Uh, so these guys, um, some of the geniuses behind some great horror films like Pumpkinhead and Aliens and Final Destination, Ooh, they okay. are releasing a horror film. It's called Hell Mountain for the Oculus Rift virtual reality headset. Ooh. That sounds
0: exciting, but can you explain Oculus Rift for those who don't know about Uh,
5: so oculus rift is a a vr headset a virtual reality headset that you put over your eyes and it basically puts you in this immersive environment so for example if the thing that you're watching it takes place in like dark woods Mm. every direction that you turn while you're wearing it you're still gonna see dark woods just a
2: different view of it full of probably super realistic bloodthirsty monsters it sounds like a literal nightmare it sounds really really terrifying I'm sure that that's part of their, well, of course, part of their their scheme. Yeah. As a kid, I could, I would turn off the television set if a Nightmare on Elm Street ad came on. If I was plunged into <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street, <laughs> I might never sleep again. This
5: is the thing that I think is the most interesting about it because when normally when you watch a horror film, right, the the mechanics that keep you sane is that you can put your <laughs> hands over your eyes, yeah. you can bury your face in the shoulder of the person next to you. <laughs> but yeah, when you have the thing strapped on your head. There's no escape.
0: There's no turning away. There's no turning. It's interesting away. that they decided to make an all-immersive horror movie because isn't that couldn't you just like go to the airport?
3: <laughs> like, I mean, like aren't there like real-life 3D
0: experiences? <laughs>
5: yeah. That are. The next, uh, the sequel will be, um, will be rush so hours. It's, in yeah. LA. So it's called, it's called Hell Mountain D.M.V. <laughs> just, oh
2: man, Mike Rugnetta, thanks for bringing this to light so I can avoid it. Thanks for having me. And now for 3D cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve with it. It's our
0: rarely imitated history
2: lesson with booze. That's right. First, the history. This week back in 1512, Michelangelo's glorious frescoes on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel
0: were unveiled for the first time. Turns out they were not works of boundless joy. Michelle Philippi tells the tale.
4: If you look up the term reluctant genius in the dictionary, there ought to be a picture beside it of Michelangelo. Back in 1508, he'd done some sketches and paintings, but he was known mainly as the guy who carved, you know, only the most amazing sculpture ever, the David in Florence. He thought of himself as a sculptor, not a painter. So when Pope Julius II decided Michelangelo should be the guy to paint frescoes on all 5,000 square feet of the Sistine Chapel ceiling, the room where new popes are elected, he said... Uh, No thanks. For one thing, he was in the middle of another project for Pope Julius, carving a massive marble tomb for him. The chapel would be a distraction. Also, uh, he'd never actually painted a fresco before. In fact, he suspected other artists, jealous of his success, had told the pope he'd be just the guy to paint the chapel so they could watch him fail. But when the Pope says paint, you paint. So Michelangelo did, with difficulty. Contrary to popular belief, he didn't work lying on his back. He stood on special platforms attached to the walls, his brush held high, paint falling onto his face. Midway through the four-year job, he wrote an only half-joking poem about his agony.
0: I've already grown a goiter from this torture, hunched up here like a cat in Lombardy. I am not in the right place. I am not a painter.
4: When he finished the frescoes, though, Michelangelo seemed to understand he'd done a pretty good job. And history confirmed it. Hundreds of years later, Goethe wrote, Without having seen the Sistine Chapel, one can form no appreciable idea of what one man is capable of achieving.
2: So that was the history. Now for a drink to serve with it. I'm on the line with Marco Leone, the owner of Exit Bar and Gallery in Rome, Italy, very near the Vatican and the Sistine Chapel. Uh, Marco, also, you're an artist and you display art in your bar, is that right?
3: Yes, I am an artist and my bar is the personal gallery of my painting.
2: That's your personal gallery. Is this Michelangelo-quality art? Is it as good as the Sistine Chapel?
3: It's a little bit different, but of course I love Michelangelo.
2: Of course, as do we all. Um, So tell us about your Sistine Chapel-inspired drink.
3: Oh, okay. Uh, We have an expression in Italy when you make a very difficult work, a very hard work, like Michelangelo. We say you give it your blood.
2: You give it your blood, like you give it your all, we would say.
3: Yeah, so I wanted to make a variation on a Bloody Mary. Uh, and this is, uh, I, name, I name my cocktail the Blood of Michelangelo. Okay. <laughs>
2: so what's the difference between this? Normally a, a, oh, a Bloody Mary has vodka and tomato juice. And... The
3: ingredients are similar to the classic one. But instead of vodka, I use Prosecco. Prosecco is a, the classic Italian sparkling wine, you know? Oh, yeah, of right? course.
2: It's kind of a champagne-like.
3: And a splash of grappa to make more strong.
2: Oh, some grappa. Oh, my God. Wine. That's a very yeah. strong <laughs> Italian spirit. Uh, but the rest is the same. You've got the, the tomato juice, lime juice. Yeah.
3: I would like to give this cocktail to Michelangelo. Maybe... He can feel better after I work so hard. You know that the Bloody Mary is full of vitamins.
2: Vitamins, yeah. He needed that. And Brendan, Michelangelo, of course, later painted a fresco of The Last Judgment on a wall mm-hmm. of the Sistine Chapel. He came back for more. He was addicted to punishment, I guess. <laughs> but The Last Judgment includes nude figures, and the clergy later found them obscene and had an artist paint basically underwear on them. <laughs> they have, of course, since been restored to their original
0: nudity. So that's right. Nice. In a process called paint stripping. <laughs> Folks, our our cocktails um, are all works of art. Find them at dinnerpartydownload.org. All right,
2: so we've sipped some cocktails, made some terrifying small talk. Now all we
0: need to get this party moving is some music. And here with that is Patrick Haggerty. Back in 1973 in Washington State, he put out Lavender Country, the first gay-themed country album. Yeah. When it was reissued earlier this year, we talked to him about it, and when we heard he was thinking about a tour, we decided to share something new from him, his party playlist.
6: Hello, everybody. My name is Patrick Haggerty. I'm going to introduce you to my Dinner Party soundtrack. I have selected a few songs that reflect who I was and where I was coming from when the seeds of Lavender Country were created.
7: I fall
6: Patsy Cline, I fall to pieces, who else? You cannot be the world's first queer country musician in 1973 and not have Patsy Cline all the way deep in your heart. Every self-respecting country queer knows that. (laughs) I believe I was milking cows when I first heard Patsy Cline sing that song. We had a radio in the bar and my heart just reached out to Patsy falling to pieces. I just felt so sorry for her. I probably did cry in the milk.
1: <laughs> to
6: my next song isn't really country.
4: Evening shadows
6: but it was what was in my heart when I was a teenager. My Happiness by uh, Connie Francis. My Happiness is really a pretty song, it's a happy song. It's about when she's gonna get back together with her man and then they're gonna be happy they've been apart. When I'm on the road missing my husband, this is the song that comes to mind. I perform for senior citizens a lot. I do about hundred shows a year. They love that song. They remember that song. It makes them happy.
3: My name.
6: The third track that I would use at my dinner party I would do the Charlie Pride version of I'll Fly Away.
3: Some glad morning when this life is over I'll fly away.
6: Charlie Pride is a black man who broke into Nashville way early. I'm sure took a lot of flack. He's just a man I really respect and admire. I kind of feel like I have a little bit of idea what he had to go through. I'll fly away is upbeat, it is spiritual without being preachy. It's a song about a happy death. People don't usually hook those two words together in the same sentence, but we do understand that concept in our culture. It's when I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. I had to pick one of my own songs for a dinner party. People would probably scream at me to sing here because that's the one everybody wants to hear. But I think Lavender Country is more in the spirit of where I want to be now. You all come out, come out, i used to, Lavender Country. You all come out and make yourselves to home. Lavender Country is a completely ideal place you get to be who you want, you get to dress however you want, you get to love whoever you want. It's queer heaven. <laughs> but it's not about who you're attracted to, it's about who you don't hate. Whether you tuck
3: in or dangle when you
0: Dinner Party soundtrack from Patrick Haggerty. His landmark album, Lavender Country, was reissued earlier this year by the label Paradise of Bachelors.
2: All right, we're going to take a quick break. But coming up, actress Elle Fanning reveals her secret for making it in Hollywood. And Brendan drinks bubbly coffee when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your week's conversations. I'm Rico Galliano.
0: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, Cannes-winning filmmaker Ruben Ostlin wonders if men maybe aren't necessary anymore. Oops. And I drink fermented coffee straight from the bottle. But first, let's meet our guest of honor.
2: Yes, and this week it's actor Elle Fanning. At age 16, she has already turned in a slew of acclaimed performances. You may have seen her as the cursed Princess Aurora in Maleficent, the second highest grossing film of the year. She co-starred as the young daughter Cleo in Sofia Coppola's Somewhere. And this week, she stars in the gritty but tender indie Lowdown, based on the memoir by Amy Jo Albany. Elle plays Amy, whose father Joe was a legendary jazz pianist and a heroin addict. Like Cleo in somewhere, Amy kind of quietly drifts through life. So, when I spoke to Elle this week from a cafe in Los Angeles, I asked her how she, a driven career actress, could possibly relate.
8: I, I do, in a, in a funny way, feel similar to them just because I think that I'm a very strong observer. Mm. Maybe that's why I love acting, you know, because I feel like I can, you know, look into someone else's life and kind of absorb what they go through, Amy and Cleo in those movies, they were watching a lot. I could relate to to that.
2: It's interesting that you mentioned that because you're right. This character doesn't have a ton of dialogue. The Mm -hmm. action is very minimal. It's a very slowly paced film. Tell me about the challenges of that when you don't have dialogue to rely on.
8: Right. I know you have to... I think that the biggest challenge was definitely playing a real character, like a real person. (laughs) I'd never done that before. That was huge. You're given someone's life in a way, and Amy was there Mm. on set every single day. So I had a huge pressure, I I felt, and and she would call me all the time. And um, one time I was in the airport, got a call from Amy. I was, like, pacing through the terminal, talking to Amy about Amy and trying to, (laughs) you know, like, (laughs) pick up. Anything that I could find also she hates getting her picture taken and so we didn't have a lot of pictures of her from when She was a teenager either, so it was like <laughs> we had uh, you, to ask her a lot
2: very little to draw on. Yes. What, I mean, Actually, that's fascinating. Did you what guidance did she give you about how to play her or not to play her
8: we you know We would have these conversations and I would mostly, I guess, again, look at her, like, <laughs> secretly. Maybe it's a little stalkerish, but I would pick up on her mannerisms and gestures and things without her kind of knowing it. What's
2: an example? Is there What's something that she yeah, does all the time that maybe she didn't even notice?
8: Well, since she's, she's kind of very shy, um, and so she mm. kind of guards herself, so her posture is kind of more downward. So I definitely picked right. up on that. Uh, mm. More slumped shoulders, you know? And especially at that time, uh, she it, it was living in such a big world with her dad, you know, with the music. And so she kind of was a little more hidden. And yet we, we talked about her experience. She always just said how much she loved her dad. I found that fascinating because he he's addicted to heroin and there's a lot of tough things that went with that so and she never seemed resentful she always said "There's a line in her book and we have it in the movie where she's like I I loved him out of all proportion and she's like I had amazing times with my dad you know we had the most fun he would call me funny nicknames and so we wanted to incorporate that too that it wasn't just all harsh
6: Mm -hmm. wake up joe time for school it's the weekend it
7: is isn't it That's great news. That's the best news.
1: We'll go do something fun later.
2: Even so, there are a lot of moments of real sadness and pain in this movie. Yeah. I can imagine that being really daunting to enact those moments with the person you're portraying standing there on the set with you.
8: Yeah, definitely. It was hard. We filmed in, like, the uh, Glenn Close's character.
2: Who plays her grandmother.
8: Yeah, she plays Graham, my grandmother. And the apartment building that we shot in was Amy's real grandmother's apartment building. It wasn't the same room, but it was the same apartment building. For For me, I was like, it was a challenge. And also, I'm like, oh, because Amy's watching and I want to get it right. She was raw and I was fa, because she was real Amy, so R-A. And then I was fake Amy. I was fa. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we (laughs) called each other. God.
2: That is so meta. Yes. Someway, was she living these things again through you, or do you think she has enough distance from it?
8: That would probably be something you'd have to ask her. I think, but we had the premiere the other day, and I saw her, and even though I'm sure she's seen the movie, you know, with different edits and all these cuts so many different times, but she did say every single time I i watch it again i I feel the feelings and the emotions come up you know i
2: actually i like the feel of this movie a lot it kind of feels like the west coast jazz the characters play it's very mellow yeah also very sad were you at all a jazz fan before shooting
8: (laughs) i was not but um Jeff is so passionate about it, the director, and it was always playing. And also Flea, he's in the movie,
2: and oh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, for those who don't
8: know, yeah, and he. Um, <laughs> He's a huge jazz fan. There's one scene where he's explaining to my character about all these records, these different, you know, musicians, and he knows all these songs, and that was completely ad-libbed because Flea just knows so much information. He
2: also runs, for those who don't know, he runs a conservatory of music here in Los Angeles. I
8: yeah, think. that's it, yeah.
2: Were there any jazz artists that you particularly got into as a part of making this movie that you now listen to?
8: Oh, Lord, you're putting me on the spot. <laughs> yeah, you
2: better, is listening right now.
8: Oh, this is awful. This is so disappointing. I mean, Joe's music was always playing.
2: Yeah, Joe Albany. Yeah,
8: Joe Albany. So there we go. Bird. Bird Parker. Yeah, he's incredible.
2: All right, we have two questions that we ask everyone on this show. All
8: right, all right.
2: And the first question is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you?
8: Should we not? You know what? This is such a funny one. It's so interesting. Press or whatever. They always ask me, do you have any friends? And I just think that's the saddest thing. I'm like, why would you ask me that?
2: Because you're a young actress? <laughs> yeah, and I'm like,
8: well I go to normal school. I think I have a lot of friends. And it's just like a weird assumption that they think I'm like always working and doing this. I like look at movies as extracurricular. A lot of my friends do mm-hmm. tennis, like I do movies, you know?
2: I think it's because people don't expect to meet someone so young having a real career. Right. And I know my career takes up all my time. Yeah. So I figure it must with you, but you just yeah. you know, swing it. <laughs>
8: Exactly.
2: All right, here's our second question, which is more of a demand, really. Tell us something we don't know.
8: You know, uh, there's something about me. I always carry um, a chicken wishbone in my purse at all times. <laughs> my, my dad gets the rotisserie chicken, and it's our thing. We have to pull the wishbone, and I never win, ever. And like a couple years ago, I actually I finally won, you know, the, the longer side, and so I keep that longer side with me. You Ever still have that, that same happened.
2: wishbone from that one time. Same years one. Ago?
8: And yeah, whenever I switch out purses, I like I gotta put the wishbone in there because it gives me good vibes and good luck.
2: <laughs> it seems to be working so far. Yeah. Elle Fanning, she stars in the new film Lowdown, based on the life of Amy Joe Albany and her dad Joe. This is Joe's music we're listening to right now. And Brendan, and I thought this was interesting for an indie these days. The film is really beautifully shot on super 16 millimeter film. You know, uh, come again? It's like a plastic, oh. it's kind of ribbon Never mind.
6: And now, time to eavesdrop.
2: Russian-born author Gary Steingart penned the bestsellers Absurdistan and Super Sad True Love Story. His hit memoir, Little Failures, just came out in paperback. Today we overhear an excerpt.
3: Hi,
7: I'm Gary Steingart. I'm 41 in Russian years, which is about 73 in American years. So I figure before I die, I I should write a memoir. And this one's called Little Failure, which was my mother's nickname for me growing up, uh, Little Failure. We came here in 1979, right before Ronald Reagan took office and introduced the term evil empire. So growing up, I was constantly taunted in school for being a communist or a Russian. There were all those movies back then, Red Gerbil, Red Hamster, Red Dawn. I mean, it was a lot of red stuff out there. And I was the gerbil. I was the hamster. I was the dawn. But instead of making me stand up for the place from which I had emigrated, I I just went the other way and became even more staunchly conservative. I grew up subscribing to the National Review. I was almost physically attracted to Margaret Thatcher. All of that conspired to lead to the section I'm about to read today, the section where I lost my love for Reagan and Thatcher and even George Herbert Walker Bush. On election day 1988, I come to the Marriott Marquis Ballroom thinking, this is the day, the day I will finally get laid. I have volunteered for George Bush Sr.'s scorched earth presidential campaign against the hapless Michael Dukakis, laughing along with Bush's racist, hysterical Willie Horton commercials and all they imply about the liberal Massachusetts Greek. Far.
5: We've been traveling far.
7: Yes, tonight is a special night. It's the night I'm to meet a Republican girl from a clean, white home. Her name will be Jane, Jane Carruthers, let's say. Hi Jane, I'm Gary Steingart from Little Neck. My family owns a colonial worth $280,000. I'm the brains behind the Commodore 64 program called the Family Real Estate Transaction Calculator. I go to Stuyvesant High School where my grades aren't so great, but I hope to get into the Honors College at the University of Michigan. I guess tonight is gonna be curtains for the governor of Taxachusetts. I enter the ballroom, a dark gap toothed immigrant wearing sweat socks and brown penny loafers in my special and only suit, a highly flammable polyester number. I navigate the room filled with sparkling anglos clutching single malts without a word said in my direction, without a pair of happy blue eyes reflecting the gray sheen of my crisp nylon tie. As George Herbert Walker Bush racks up state after state on the big screen above us, as cheers and laughter circulate around the massively hideous ballroom, I stand alone in a corner, biting down on my plastic cup filled with ginger ale, until a pair of teenage blonde lovelies, the girls I have been waiting for all my life, finally approach with needy smiles on their faces, one of them beckoning me to come hither with her hand. I'm so excited I somehow fail to see myself for what I am. A short teenage boy trapped inside a shiny gunmetal jacket, carrying about a mop of the darkest hair in the room, darker even than Michael Dukakis's Hellenic dew. Which one will be my Jane? Which one will trace the W of my weak chin with her pewter fingers? Which one will take me on her boat and introduce me to the millionaire and his wife? You know something, Daddy? Gary survived communist Russia just so he could join the GOP. Well, I think that's very courageous, son. Would you like to throw the old pigskin around with me and Jack Kemp after cocktails? Just leave your topsiders in the mudroom. Hey, one of the lovelies says. Me, debonair, unconcerned. Hey. So, I'll have a rum and coke, just a splash of ice and a lime. Mandy, you said no ice, right? She'll have a diet coke, lime, no ice. I have been mistaken for the waiter.
0: Harry Steingart, reading from his memoir, Little Failures, came out in paperback this month. And you're listening, perhaps in a flammable suit, to the Dinner Party Download from American Public Media.
2: And now, the main course where we talk about our favorite part of a party, the food.
0: So Rico, everyone knows that coffee and tea are frenemies. Do we really know that? Is that true? They they hang out in the same shops all the time, so they have to be civil with each other. But they're actually fiercely competitive. (laughs) So when coffee learned about the growing popularity of kombucha, the fermented tea, he needed to get in on that game. And the result is coffer. Coffer. Yes, that's coffee plus fermentation. Ah. And assisting coffee in this endeavor is Kevin Chen. He created in Bottles Coffer. It's a big hit in his hometown of Austin, Texas. But this week, he brought some to our studio, and I asked him, did the world really need this? I think so. We have so many caffeine delivery systems already in society. Why do I need coffer?
9: I think coffer is you've got the caffeine and you have got the fermentation and you uh-huh. have got the carbonation. Three different worlds. And we're finally kind of combining all three together. Well, what's wrong with normal coffee? Oh, there's absolutely nothing wrong with normal coffee. Uh, we're just kind of taking coffee and sprucing it up a little bit. What's wrong with Cola. Uh, there's nothing wrong with cola. I think the, uh, the difference between coffer and a cola is the number of calories you find in a cola versus here. Cola typically uses a lot of sweetener. Okay. Um, ours is only 50 calories. What What's in coffer? Coffer, there's four main ingredients. There's water, there's coffee, there's sugar, and there's yeast. Okay. And that's all there is in there. And some other companies make carbonated
0: coffee. First of all, full disclosure, I'm a tea drinker. All right. Coffee, I do turn to coffee in emergencies, but I am aware from going to coffee shops where I work a lot that there are other carbonated coffees in the market, right? I mean, this is a tiny, tiny piece of the larger coffee market,
9: but people are expanding into this. Is that yeah, true? I would think so. That within the coffee market, there are the specialty coffees. Yeah. And maybe within the specialty coffees, there's even more specialty. And I'd say we would kind of fit into that more specialty, yeah. where typically coffee isn't carbonated, and, and for the most part, coffee usually isn't cold. Hmm. And I feel that most recently, the cold-brewed coffee interest has That's really right. grown. And we've taken the cold brew coffee, and kinda of taking it to a different level where instead of just serving it cold on ice, we carbonate we have it carbonated naturally. If I understand correctly, one of the reasons people like cold brewed coffee Is um, It's smoother. It has less acid. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's a lot smoother. It's not as acidic. It's not as harsh on the palate or on the stomach. So this is naturally carbonated. How does natural carbonation happen? Well, natural carbonation, uh, the two ingredients that you need is the sugar and the yeast. Mix the sugar and the yeast together, Mm -hmm. and we let it sit, and you're left with a product that is naturally carbonated, where the bubbles are significantly finer than something you would find in maybe a beer or a soda, mm-hmm. where those are typically something you'll find that's force carbonated, mm. where you inject CO2 and mm-hmm. let this carbon dioxide mix with it. And that's actually kind of how we started this process. We took cold brewed coffee, injected it with CO2 in one of those home soda machines, and what we found was it actually made a smooth coffee really bitter. Mm-hmm. And so we experimented with different ways of getting a carbonated coffee, and we came across this. When you talk about the carbonation process, it sounds like a fermentation process. What, isn't that beer? What makes this not beer? Are it's, you sure it's not beer? It's sure it's not beer. We've tested it, and we've made <laughs> sure that, oh, so in order to make alcohol, yeah. you need sugar, yeast, and thyme. Okay. We have two of those three. All right. Let me open one of these
0: up. It just so happens that we have a beer opener here at Dinner Party Download headquarters. Smells great. Smells chocolatey. It's got interesting notes.
9: Are you just jacked all the time on coffee? My my typical coffee consumption is usually one cup a day. Okay. And for me, a bottle of coffee to my body it's more like two cups of coffee yeah so I do get that jitteriness but I think it's more of the rate in which I consume it Mm. versus the quantity all right well let's drink this I'm gonna pour it it looks like cola
0: it does it smells like coffee and chocolate all right I'm gonna take a sip here it's interesting I didn't think of it like seeing it I think it's gonna be sweet Mm-hmm. Drinking it, I remember, it's coffee. It's not going to be sweet, but yet it's not bitter at all. Is the sugar that you use to ferment this kind of still playing a role at this point?
9: We we call this a faintly sweetened coffee. Mm-hmm. And so there's a little bit of residual sugar mm-hmm. uh, to make it a little, a little bit palatable. It's just the right balance mm. of sugar to be able to balance well with the aging process. This is probably going to do better in regions where it's hot, right? I think... It's been pretty great when we launched this product in July in Austin mm-hmm. where the summers are pretty brutal. humid. Yeah, it's intense. And it worked really well as a mm-hmm. as a nice cold coffee alternative mm-hmm. cuz like New York come January, you know, it's like let's, let's get inside and split a
0: cold cup of coffee.
9: Mm-hmm.
0: I don't I don't know if that's going to happen. I'm sure you could put it in the microwave <laughs> and see what happens. <laughs> So Rico, if Kevin learns how to carbonate cigarettes, I think he could really own the break time market in America. (laughs) You could pair that with coffer or beer. Exactly. Great. It'd be the opposite of a health drink. At last. Uh, Folks, coming up, we speak with can-winning filmmaker Ruben Oshlund.
2: When The Dinner Party Download continues.
0: Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download. Culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we'll hear a brand new tune from rocker King
2: Tough. And coming up, Brendan chats with Ruben Ostlund, director of Force Majeure, a movie about how a family responds to a threatening situation.
0: It's all about human behavior, and we'll hear about that right after our weekly segment on human behavior, a.k.a. etiquette.
2: That's right. Each week you send in your etiquette questions, and here to answer them today is Dan Pashman. He is the host and creator of the WMYC podcast, The Sportful, and author of the new book, Eat More Better, How to Make Every Bite More Delicious. The book is organized like a textbook, and its aim is to have readers, quote, eat for maximum pleasure. And Dan, welcome.
1: Hey, guys. Thanks.
2: So the book is full of these very funny kind of faux scientific, but actually legitimately practical techniques. Yeah. Uh, Let's take one example of this, the pork lift. Oh, yeah. What is the pork lift? All
1: right. Let me ask you guys. You're going to eat a giant stack of pancakes. You pour syrup over your pancakes. And granted, we probably agree that- That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, right. We agree that that's awesome. And we probably agree that pancakes are kind of like already a syrup delivery system. Sure.
2: Yeah. Sure.
1: The bottom pancake sits in the syrup, and what happens?
2: Soggy. It's soggy with delicious maple syrup. What's the problem here?
1: Wait, but not don't you think there's such a thing as too soggy? Mm. You could possibly ma- let's let's go with your argument. Yeah, <laughs> that's okay. a bad thing. Yeah,
0: that, this could be a problem for some.
1: I mean, if you don't think that a pancake can ever get too soggy with maple syrup, then you might as well just drink maple syrup. <laughs> so the pork lift basically, you build a bacon lattice structure with a couple of sides of bacon, and then you put the pancake stack on top of the lattice, and that elevates oh. the bottom pancake so it doesn't mm. sit in syrup. <laughs> and you're, yeah. But you're gonna mess
0: up your pancake to bacon bite ratio. How so? Well, for lattice, I'm assuming you need at least probably four slices of bacon, and then you're trying to yeah. get that bite ratio with the crunch of the bacon, the maple syrup, and the pancake, if you're giving away four of your bacons off the
1: top. I have a response to that, Brendan, which is that okay. anytime you fork any kind of bite, be very cognizant mm-hmm. of what ends up on the tip of the fork, because that's what mm-hmm. will land on your tongue, and that flavor will be accentuated. Mm-hmm. Okay. You have the bacon on the bottom then the stack of pancakes. You cut a bite. You stab your fork straight down. You have a perfectly- Oh, I like that. designed bite right there. I like the that. The bacon is on the tip of the fork. And the bacon has already been imbued with maple-based deliciousness. You don't want to argue against that, do you? Yeah,
0: that won't compromise the integrity of the pork lift. Oh, good point. It could all collapse. It
1: will not. I've worked on this... Okay. I've done
0: the work. <laughs> all right, look, so you obviously are a teacher of all things food. Clearly. Uh, and there's actually a chapter in your book about etiquette. Are you ready to answer our listeners' etiquette questions? I'm ready. So our first question comes from Ziggis in New York City. Ziggis asks, what's the etiquette for eating the last piece of bread or an appetizer that comes in an odd number?
1: Uh. This, is, this is a good question. I, I would say that if you're in a situation where everyone has gotten an equal number, Mm-hmm. And now there's just one left, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then every man or woman for themselves. <laughs> you just dive? Yeah, just go for it. But let's say you've gotten three and everyone else has gotten two, and now mm-hmm. there's only one left. I think you should give other people a chance to take it. I'm with you. But I also think there's a statute of limitations because, like, let's say it's an appetizer that involves melted cheese. Well, as it sits there, the cheese is cooling and congealing, and it's not as melty. It's losing deliciousness before your very eyes. Oh, my God. So I think it's rude to let a food sit before you and diminish in its deliciousness. <laughs> yeah. That they could be avoided. Yeah. It's
0: an insult
2: to everyone. That's right. So Ziggis dive on it before it goes to waste. Here's something from Jenny in Portland. Jenny writes, my boyfriend is vegan, and when we're picking a restaurant, he will often say, don't worry about me. I can just have fries. I never take him up on this, and I only go to places which have vegan-friendly dishes which are not vegetable-centric, because he's not that into vegetables. <laughs> 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 anyway, I know these man. type of vegans, Oh yeah. my god. She continues, anyway, that really limits my culinary exploration of Portland. Should I take him up on this offer to just have him eat fries? I
1: would say sometimes yes, sometimes no. Mm. I mean, I, I, mm. I don't think you constantly want to have him eating fries. You know, th- he'll be... die, right? <laughs> but I also don't think that Jenny should feel guilty about on occasion being like. I heard there's this great restaurant. I'm going to bring my boyfriend and he's going to eat fries. And, and
0: think about it like not so long ago when you decided to be a vegetarian, I'm thinking my friends in high school, sure. you pretty much just ate French fries at the diner. Yeah, that's Especially true. Especially if he doesn't like vegetables, I'm yeah. guessing
1: he probably right. likes these French fries. But
2: what does he eat? I mean, so basically is it seitan and soy product? French fries. And rice? That's all he eats?
1: There are a lot of good vegan baked goods. That's actually, I think, where the area of vegan foods is most advanced. All right. mm-hmm. But- I mean, unless he's just sitting there eating cake all day. <laughs> this guy sounds like the unhealthiest vegan I've ever heard of.
0: <laughs> he doesn't just need vitamin D. He needs vitamin A, B, C. The whole alphabet of pills. <laughs> all, right, all right. So there you go, Jenny. Uh, indulge yourself once in a while. This next question comes from JR in LA. JR writes, my friend's son, a curious three-year-old, has barely tasted sugar. His parents don't want him to be lost to the dark side of overindulgence and sweets. Here's the thing can I eat my beloved Halloween candy in his presence?
1: Ooh. That's a tough one. It's almost harder when it's someone else's kid. Yeah. You know, because when it's your kid, you know, it's up to you to screw them up as you like. <laughs> I am a yeah. parent. I have a four-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old. And I actually talked about this in an episode of The Sporkful a while back with Hillary Frank. She does a great parenting podcast called The Longest Shortest Time. Indeed. That's correct. She talked about, like, sneaking animal crackers in the next room when her daughter is not looking. <laughs> and her daughter's like, I hear a crunch, crunch sound. What is that? In the
2: 1960s, this would have been marijuana. Now you're sneaking right, right. animal crackers. <laughs>
1: it's I know, how the mighty have fallen. I Look, I, I don't think Jr. should be prohibited from eating candy in this child's presence, especially if they're around each other frequently. Mm -hmm. If it's like a once a month you see this kid for an hour, then I mean I think you could go an hour that eating candy. That's
0: what I'm worried about. JR, you're an adult and you have to eat Halloween candy in front of a kid? Like. <laughs>
1: well, I did a whole episode about uh, trick-or-treating for adults one time and I actually had a woman who told me that half the reason why she had kids was that she'd have an excuse to go trick-or-treating. Oh, man. Oh, That's man. a long road to hope. <laughs> <For> some- <laughs> yeah.
2: For some Snickers. I
1: don't know. It, ta- it tastes better when you're taking it out of your kid's bag of candy,
2: I have to say. <laughs> All right. So there you go, JR. Um, here's something from Amy in Virginia. Amy writes, I have a special recipe handed down to me by my mother. I often make this recipe and give the dish to people as a gift. I am often asked for the recipe, and I don't want to share it. Mm. Can I refuse and still be considered a well-behaved human being?
1: Yeah, I, I, I would have to say it's really wrong not to share the recipe. I mean, you need to have it. Awfully good reason. Really, um, I mm. ran into this a bit with, with my book. There's a recipe for a thing called drunken salami, which is salami that marinates for weeks in scotch and Russian dressing. Oh my god, you um, sounds just...
0: compl- sounds like a complicated recipe. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> wow, are you sure you want to share that with everyone, Dan? Also, how did you reach directly into my dreams to create a dish <laughs> that is amazing sounding?
1: It is really, really good, and it, but it was created by a gentleman who I've never met. He passed away years ago, and it was his daughter who taught a friend who taught me the recipe. And so I sort of had to tiptoe a little bit because it's sort of like this gentleman's legacy that He, since he's passed on that people oh, still make yeah. this dish and always talk about him at special occasions. If you have a specific situation like this, or, or if you're just... I don't even know what your fear is, that someone's going to mess it up and then tell their friends that it was your recipe. Well, because she likes giving it as a gift. She's special for having it. Yeah, this is,
0: aren't we in danger of eliminating the little specialness, which is an important attribute to deliciousness?
1: Honestly, first of all, I think if it's that good and you've been making it for that long, they're never going to make it as well as you do. Oh, but well, I think that if Amy wants a convenient excuse, blame a dead relative. <laughs> Just be like, you know, on my grandmother's deathbed, she told me never to share this recipe. That's there you go, blame the dead. <laughs> (laughs) That's polite.
0: Dan Pashman, that's what we're looking for. (laughs) Thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Dan Pashman, he hosts the podcast The Sporkful from WNYC. His new book is called Eat More Better, How to Make Every Bite More Delicious. And folks, if you want to behave
2: more better, send us your etiquette questions via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org.
0: Have you ever been threatened in front of someone you love? How did you respond? How did they respond? Did it change your relationship? These are the questions Swedish director Ruben Osland explores in his film Force Majeure. The movie picked up a jury prize at Cannes, has received critical acclaim around the world, and this week is being released in the United States. It's about a young family who goes on a vacation at a fancy ski resort, But early on, an avalanche occurs, and although they survive, it shakes up their marriage. Ruben, thanks for joining us. Yeah, hello. One reviewer described this film as one that will, quote, throw a wrench into many a date night. What do you think is the best way to see this film, alone or with a loved one?
10: (laughs) Well, I think one of the goals with the film was to uh, raise the percentage of divorce in society.
1: <laughs> so...
10: I think you're succeeding. Yeah, probably. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully I will. But I guess so. I, w- I want everybody to consider the film like a relationship test uh, so mm. they can go together and, and instead of spending like 10 or 20 years to get it, maybe you can come to a quicker decis- decision.
0: It's cheaper than couples therapy. You can just <laughs> check it out. and
10: Definitely. So
0: explain in more detail what the film is about and why you made it.
10: The situation is the Avalanche is approaching an outdoor restaurant and suddenly the, the father in the family is getting so scared that he runs away and his his wife and his kids and mm. then it turns out to be no catastrophe it's only snow smoke that reaches the restaurant so he has to go back and try to face the fact that he has been acting in a way that you're not supposed to act when you are a father if you are a man mm. if you are a father and if you are a man you're supposed to stand up for your family if there's an outside threatening and I think that it's very, very forbidden if you if you if you are a man and you have to you have to have to deal with uh, losing face in front of your family. And I think this, the situation is immediately triggering questions: What would you do if you were in a catastrophe uh, mm. incident like this? Uh, how would it, you handle it?
0: It's interesting to hear you talk about it in terms of masculinity, because when I'm I was watching the film, I was thinking, all right, yeah, this gets at these essential questions about what it means to be a man, mm. and yet it doesn't necessarily have to be viewed through the filter of gender, right? I mean, it's what it means to be human, right? The survival instinct, the the fight or flight instinct um, is universal across genders. Yeah. So it's interesting. So you really saw this as specifically like he failed as a man, not as a human.
10: No, but of course I see it uh, from, a, from a perspective also of being a human. But I guess that it raises question about the expectations on gender and expectations on the man and, and the woman. Mm. And I think I was interested in it also because if you look at cinema history, uh, and the, I would say like the most reproduced role in cinema history when it comes to the man is the man as a hero. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you compare that to statistic from like uh, maritime uh, catastrophes, uh, ferry catastrophes, you, yeah. can, you can see that the percentage of survivors is uh, the, the one that survives most are men in a certain age, and the one that dies is actually women and kids. So we have all those myths about for example, Titanic, when, when they said that, okay, women and kids first in the lifeboat. Yeah. But when it comes to uh, survival instinct, uh, the man actually have the ability of acting egoistic and abandon, abandon everyone else to save, to save himself. <laughs> and I, I yeah. thought these facts were uh, tragical and comical at the same time. Certainly a rich vein to
0: mine for a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, Yet, if we're going to do pop psychology, which since I'm just a journalist and you're a film director, that's all we can do. Thomas is the provider for the family. He's the only one who earns an income. He's their pipeline for food uh, and he Mm. is critical to their survival. Uh, His wife raises the kids. Maybe he was protecting himself to protect the family because he thought, you know, on another
10: level that without him... They wouldn't survive. Yeah, sure, maybe, and also I guess it's. I think that the the roles of the man and the roles of the woman in the nuclear family is quite limited, and it's it's obvious that couples that have been in a crisis situation like this have a problem to 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 get over it and have a problem to continuing together. Mm. I I actually read an an investigation about airplane hijackings. And mm-hmm. you could tell that the frequency of divorce is extremely high after airplane hijackings. And oh my I, goodness. And I think it says something about the expectations that we have on each other and that we not very often are facing survival instinct and therefore we, we, we don't know how to handle it. And, and we project the disappointment and things like that on our partner. Well,
0: is, the lo- is the logic behind that that part of the reason we create a nuclear family is uh, to feel like uh, like a level of protection. And when that gets tested, when it turns out, you know what, where there crazy events in the world that your partner is unable to protect you from, that kind of makes people question whether or not they should even be in relationships?
10: One thing is the, the, the man of the role that, that are expected to stand up for an outside threat. But in our society, I, I don't think there is, <laughs> we, don't, we don't use this role of the man that much mm-hmm. a, anymore. And so I think that we can question if we need him at all. So I'm curious how this movie went
0: over in your native Sweden, which is on the vanguard of feminism. There's a mm. feminist political party. Yeah. The, the government even created a genderless pronoun. Um, what has the reception been there?
10: Well, um, there's a lot of feminists that have watched the film and also a quite famous one that have been writing articles about it and, and so on. And I, I, I can tell there's like even though we don't want to admit it there's like still a war between the sexes and between mm. still a war between the genders so so i guess that the one that was really provoked of the film are men that are sixty plus or something. They are so provoked of the of the character of Thomas. I mean, I'm really pushing him down on the bottom. i'm I'm letting yes. him cry the the worst man cry ever. i'm I'm letting him be <laughs> really, really pathetic. What I think is very humorous is, uh, if you look at Anglo-Saxon movies, Hollywood movies, they always mm-hmm. start with a character that loses his dignity and get, mm-hmm. get his, his dig- dignity back in, uh, before yeah. the film ends. Yes. In my films, all the characters lose their dignity and never get it back. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's actually how it is in real life. Ruben,
0: thank you so much for coming by and, and chatting with us about your film. Uh, thank you so much. Filmmaker Ruben Oshlin, his much-discussed movie, Force Majeure, hits American theaters this weekend, and you should check it out alone. Yes,
2: (laughs) unless your relationship is on super solid ground. Mm. And that's the Dinner Party download for this week, folks. Thanks to ultra-manly Jackson Musker, who is our intrepid associate producer. Brittany Martin is our digital assistant. Our interns are Edward Morales and Christiana Cabal. Ravi Karman engineered this week. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And now it's time for one for the road—a song to play on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties.
0: And just in time for Halloween parties, here's one from Headbanger King Tuff, also known as Kyle Thomas. Nice. His new album is called Black Moon Spell, and the title track is just the thing to whistle when you're walking past a graveyard. Bon appetit.
2: Thanks for attending the dinner party.
0: Download. I'm Rico Galliano, and I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Thanks for earthquake! <laughs> get me out me out! Guys, get out of my way! You, guys, guys to, that go go was just a out garbage truck outside. Get
4: out of, I'm get going out
0: to die! Out of way! Hey guys, I can't believe they left me here.